Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Hola, benvenido, listeners. Welcome back to the Hidden History Happy Hour with Alex Dean and me, Brian Cunningham. I rarely ever quote Alex Dean, my close friend, because honestly, I just don't want it to go to his head. But today, I feel I must quote him. With imagination, it's possible to find a route to doing the right thing, even whilst working around the rules. We are two weeks out ladies and gentlemen, from talking about Putin's genocidal invasion of Ukraine. And today, we have to return to that sober topic. As we record this, President Biden, Prime Minister Johnson, and the leaders of NATO are meeting in Brussels to try to figure out how to deal with the increasingly likely possibility that Vladimir Putin, on top of his other war crimes, will use chemical weapons in the Ukraine. And both of our stories today have some resonance with these events, particularly the second one. The first one, though, is relevant to the second one. So I think I'll leave you in suspense about the lessons, and we'll ask Alex to tell the first of two stories, both of which involve Aroostook County, Maine, USA. If I said that right, Alex, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be uh, with you. Um, you threw me slightly with your expert foreign language at the beginning. I say Aristook. <laughs> I think that's I think that's right. And it is huge. Uh, it's the largest county east of the Mississippi in uh, in your country. And it's geographically. Well, what did you think I meant? Oh, a population. Well, by yeah. Population. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were inventing your own inventing your own standards. Now. <laughs> yes, geographically. Fair enough. And uh, it's bigger than three states. You, you might uh, like to play along and have a guess as to which three states they are. Tweet those to us. All right, uh, exactly. It's bigger than three states. But my point about this story is that Aroostook County in Maine could have been a great deal bigger. As you know, mm -hmm. uh, the Treaty of Paris brought uh, the American Revolutionary War to a close in 1783. But it didn't define the border between the United States and the great loyalists of British North America, uh, mm. precisely. And this mattered in Maine, uh, which was not yet a state. And then in the War of 1812, which, uh, as you know, went rather well for the UK, uh, much of Maine was <laughs> occupied by uh, Great Britain. And when the war was over, uh, attempts to define that border more precisely were uh, unsuccessful. And it just kind of got ignored for a little while. But then after Maine became a state in 1820, the issue reared its head again. And both parties, the United States and Great Britain, asked King William of the Netherlands to arbitrate between uh, as a neutral party. Reconciling the treaties that existed with the maps that people had was so hard that King William just gave up and proposed a compromise between the parties. Under his terms, Britain would get 4,119 square miles of territory and in the area on dispute, and the United States would get 7,908 square miles. That seems like more. You get a lot more. Britain accepted the compromise. The USA did not. <laughs> Tensions mounted. Forces were amassed. 
and the so-called Aroostook War commenced. Uh, the war had precisely no casualties, but two militiamen were, in what I think is the most Canadian thing ever, uh, <laughs> injured by black bears. In, in truth, neither side really wanted a conflict, right? And as a result, there we had the Webster-Ashburton Treaty, which drew the Aroostook War to a close. The USA got 7,015 square miles and the British got 5,012. Point being, had America simply accepted William's compromise, America today would be circa 900 square miles larger uh, than it is in fact is. Mm. And possibly have a few more black bears also. I almost certainly would have some more black bears. So this, by the way, didn't actually resolve things completely because the USA and Canada continued to be at odds over Machias Seal Island, population zero, uh, except lighthouse keepers, and North Rock, population zero. And I confess to our listeners that, to me at least, the view or views of black bears on those outstanding issues remain unknown. <laughs> and uh, I got a good caveat for you. Um, in the course of the Webster-Ashburton business, when they were doing the second round of negotiations, Britain had a map that suggested some support for the American case. <laughs> America had a map that suggested some support for the British case. And it neither came to light at the time, right? <laughs> uh, it's just kind of, well, it's kind of awkward somewhere in the library. I don't know quite where it is. Uh, it's too awkward, difficult to find it. We, d- we don't have that system yet librarians use to uh, work out where everything is. So, no um, Freedom of Information Act in those days. Exactly. But so what's the lesson? What's the Aristokian lesson for me? It's a classic one about negotiation. Sometimes, especially between states and when it comes to territory, sometimes pragmatically, the offer on the table is the one that you should take, no matter how much it's resented. And no matter what the grudges of history might be, you may wind up worse off later if you don't. Absolutely. But does this not also call into question King William's skill as a moderator, as a negotiator, because you'd think he would have perhaps done some shuttle diplomacy and made this point to the American side. I'm sure he tried, but you were a young and headstrong republic at the time, unlike the mature souls that you are now. (laughs) I'm sure we had some good reasons. Yeah, yeah, quite. I tell you, actually, one other thing while we talk about this story, uh, our guest John Grant on an earlier episode uh, used to work for Republican Senator Susan Collins. And uh, I, this, I knew about this relatively you know, rural and conservative area of, of Maine as a result of talking about the politics of the USA with John. And that led me to win an office sweepstake on who was going to stay in the Senate. I correctly predicted the re-election of Republican Senator Susan Collins, uh, thanks to her <laughs> former staffer, John uh, Grant. So as a throwback to a former episode. Oh, I recall, the, I recall that prediction. And it's, it's pretty relevant, actually, to a lot of consultants misunderstanding of American politics. I had a right. law professor at the University of Virginia who used to refer to any place in between the East Coast and the West Coast as the United States as simply those square states and probably gave them about as much thought as that suggests. And they rural America elected Donald Trump once and uh, might do so in the future. Well, it sounds like your professor was not someone who would be a good guest on this podcast, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's the Aristotle war. Sometimes pork and beans war. Well, now we have to, our listeners <laughs> need to know why it was called the pork and beans war instead of the black bear war, for example. Well, I, of course, would call it the black bear war, but people claim that it was called the pork and beans war in relation to either 
what British soldiers ate in their rations mm -hmm. or what the lumberjacks of Maine ate. And it was just like the, it was like a redneck war or the Hicks war or the guys mm -hmm. who guys up in the far cold North who eat pork and beans. That's the best possible. There's no definitive answer on that. Right. But that's the best that people get to. Well, Alex, was it Napoleon who said that armies, uh, wars are won on the stomach? Armies march like on that. their stomachs. Armies yeah. march Which, on their stomachs. Displaying yeah. a magnificently Gallic disregard for anatomy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think he was a little short on knowledge on that one. He was a little short all around. I didn't realize reading the story that the first part of the story occurred before Maine was a state. Before it was United a state. States. Yeah. Do we know if there was any contest between i guess it would have been called british north america now canada and the united states on whether maine would become a u.s state or a province was there did they vote on that if i've misled you i apologize it wasn't that uh, the, the, there was always going to be a big chunk to the south of what is now canada that was part of the united states it was because it was a territory so at the time, it didn't have any rights of states to elect senators and so forth. It didn't have that. But the history of Maine after European, of course, it has a, a rich history of, of prior to um, Europeans arriving. But um, the point is that after the Britain defeated the French in what was then Acadia in the 1740s and was ruling you know, much of that area, Maine was governed as part of Massachusetts. And then, of course, Maine was physically separate from the rest of, of Massachusetts. And there was this long-standing disputes about the people of what we might call, you know, the North Massachusetts or whatever you want to call it, uh, who felt neglected by Massachusetts proper, as we now, you know, what we now call Massachusetts. And they had votes uh, in the Massachusetts Assembly to allow Maine to secede from Massachusetts itself. Uh, and in part, that was that was part of why Britain felt confident in conducting the inverted commas invasion because you know there were uh, pro-british merchants in that area who refused to defend maine against uh, britain they felt neglected by massachusetts hq and finally in 1819 massachusetts voted to accept secession and it was of course part of the missouri compromise because massachusetts and maine became states at the same time so as far as we know there weren't hordes of upstart Mainers who wanted to be Canadian or British North American at the time. Oh, there were there was definitely sympathy towards British North America, and in part, if you think about it, you know, you're part of a dispossessed territory that is right. you know, it's separated from the state of which you are nominally a part, and you, you know, your population centers are closer to you. The great trading power of the seas that you've been used to trading with uh, governs British North America still. There will have been some sympathy for that, but there was no real basis in law for it, and there was no overwhelming groundswell for it. It wasn't like having become part of the United States that that, that area was going to move towards Canada. No, I don't think that was ever the case. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great story, and we will uh, we'll return to small wars that most people haven't heard of, as we have done in the past. Oh, man, our staple. Exactly right. It's it's also a, it's also a somewhat amusing story, unless you're the victims of the black bears, of course. But less amusing is our turn to our second story. And as someone said in a movie, I told you that story so I could tell you this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't remember where that line comes from. <laughs> we'll try to find. Neither it. do I, but but I like it, and I'm going to steal it, and that's going to become a a regular, I think, in our patch together um, anecdotes that we tell on the show. I think that's right. So our listeners will probably remember that in 1940, your prime minister, Winston Churchill, and your brave countrymen and women essentially faced 
the genocidal Nazi regime alone. Uh, talk us down. Protecting the rest of the free world from that. I don't know if there are any echoes to today's President Zelensky. We can, I guess, leave that to our listeners. But as our listeners probably will also know, in those dark days of 1940, Prime Minister Churchill asked our President Roosevelt if he could borrow some 40 to 50 naval destroyers to help defend himself against the Nazi maritime threat, particularly submarines. Now, our Congress at the time here in the United States, not so much. There was incredibly strong sentiment against the United States entering into World War II, and there were actually laws on the books which attempted to tie the hands of President Roosevelt because the more isolationist members of our Congress believed that he might try to sneak us into the war. God forbid he would have done that. And of course, there's no historical evidence he did. Right. This is to pick pick up one thing. It it wasn't that we were going to borrow ships. And indeed, if we had borrowed them, that might have been argued Corsus Belli and you were you were lending us stuff. It was a destroyers for bases deal um, between our countries. And you transferred about 50 destroyers to the Royal Navy um, in exchange for for land rights uh, on places that were in British possession. They weren't exactly top of the line ships either. They were were Caldwell and Wicks and um, Clemson, uh, those were the three classes of destroyers that you guys supplied us with. Well, once again, Alex, your lack of patience has ruined what would have been a perfectly good story, because I was about to mention that there was an 1892 law on the books in the United States that empowered our Defense Department to loan unused military goods in return for something of value from another country. And so despite all of the laws that Congress had specifically passed trying to ensure America's neutrality, President Roosevelt, hearkening back to your quote at the beginning of the episode about a little imagination, determined that we could provide the destroyers on a five-year temporary basis in return for access to British Empire facilities in the Caribbean. In selling this to the American people when it became known, President Roosevelt used the analogy that if your neighbor's house is on fire and he doesn't have a hose, but you do, you're smart to lend him the hose because he can put out his house fire and therefore the fire will never reach your house. And when his house is safe, he will return the hose to you. Now, you would think that having learned this lesson in the 1940s, our leaders today would be able to find more creative ways to get more powerful weaponry to the Ukrainians. And we are working on it and we have done a lot. But Alex, that wasn't the only time something like that was done, was it? No, correct. Um, And of course, there were were some people who complained about the extent to which the deal that you've just described was so one-sidedly in favor of the United States. I mean, the the destroyers that became what we called the town class, those 50 destroyers were on your reserve books from the Mm -hmm. shipbuilding program you had from World War I. Not to mention the complaints that it was unconstitutional, going back to the book we referenced earlier. Yeah, I'm not talking about complaints on your side. I'm talking about complaints on ours. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, anyway, you rightly say it was not the only example of imaginative ways of transferring materiel to assist friends in need. And the, the story that I tell now is also in Aristotle County. So they're very much of a pair. The county seat in Aristotle County is the small town of Houlton. And uh, during the Second World War, um, of course, as you rightly point out, before America had entered it, um, the USA built an airbase at Houlton right on the border with Canada. The border established in the last story that we just discussed. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And the USA flew planes into that Houlton base, careful not to enter Canadian airspace, because the Canadians were, as they are, loyally now to this day in the Commonwealth and fighting alongside the British, mm-hmm. whilst the USA was, inverted commas, neutral. And then Canadian farmers who knew uh, that farmers, whether Ukrainian or Canadian, would play such leading roles in the mm-hmm. fate of nations. Canadian farmers would come along with their tractors and they would literally drag these military aircraft oh. across the border. Uh, and the Canucks would then close the highway, which became a temporary runway, and whoosh, off these planes would go to London for the war effort. And I love lots about this story, mm-hmm. Brian. Uh, I love the letter of the law being respected and the prompt way around it that was found. Uh, I love the fact that it hinged on some local farmers doing their bit. And I love the shared endeavor between our three great countries in this tiny, obscure corner of cold North Maine. And um, there's one more point I want to make. This operation had casualties. There were four casualties who sadly died in a crash just off the runway when taking a bomber to Britain. And the pilot was a a Kiwi, um, yet another nation in this great band of friends. Think about that from all the other side of the world, um, doing his best for our our band of nations fighting against evil and and tyranny and and, um, came to his death to the side of the runway in North Maine, Mm. so far from home. It's a poignant example, I think, of our worldwide shared efforts in that cause. And he, the New Zealander George Newell Harrison and his radio operator, Sergeant Henry Bordwick, are um, buried in rural Maine and their Commonwealth war graves are maintained by reciprocal agreement by the American Legion. And their Mm. two colleagues who were Royal Canadian Air Force Sergeants, uh, August Beckwell and Arthur Gibson, were buried in their native Canada. I don't imagine those names have been said in news in a long time. And I rather like highlighting the sacrifice that they made. And I think, as you rightly said, it's possible to find a route to doing the right thing with some imagination. And the second is that one should heed the sacrifices made away from the main stage and Mm -hmm. the noise of the battlefield because they matter just as much. Mm-hmm. Well, I believe I neglected to mention at the outset of our show that breaking all of our rules, I am drinking tequila, Alex, because I am in Mexico. And uh, I'm not sure what you're drinking, but I think all of us should raise a glass to those brave folks and maybe visit there if we get a chance. Cheers. I will. Now, have you been to this area, Alex? I have never been to Maine. And I would like to go very much. And this story has made me want to go very much. I'd love, I'm fascinated by having told these stories. I spent, I love maps and I spend some time looking at the, the strange maps of Northern United States and Canada. And there are some little towns like Calais and Lubeck, the European Lubeck we discussed in another story. Um, these places have great resonances and they seem very beautiful. I'd like to visit very much. And because, um, Pilots, at least RAF pilots, were famous in the UK for getting a lot of beer down them before um, or after uh, <laughs> flying. I'm just having a beer today. Well, that seems appropriate. Well, Alex, we realized we were remiss in that we passed our 10th episode, our milestone episode, our great John Barry episode, without, without toasting it. So first of all, cheers to our 10th episode. Cheers, Brian. Who knew we would get this far? I started these stories with some tweets. I had no idea to become a book. Uh, I did a book. I had no idea to become a podcast. Who knows where next? Yeah, who knows indeed? Well, that's a very good question. We can reveal a little bit of where it's going to go next. As our listeners recall, we had our first live episode in Denver, Colorado some time ago. 
recounting the tale of the uh, only person convicted of cannibalism in U.S. history. And while we probably won't have a subject that is quite as, I don't know, tasty, hmm. digestible uh, as that, we are planning a, another live episode jumping from Denver, Colorado to the Big Apple, the New York City, the big show, as they say. Looking forward to it very much. Yes. And as our executive producer tells us, if you can make it there. You can make it anywhere. Yeah, exactly. So listeners, mark your calendars. If you're anywhere in the vicinity of New York City, or if you have a lot of miles you want to use up, the week of June 6, 2022, or in Europe, 6 June, 2000. D-Day, either way. Yes, it's a D-Day. Don't worry, it's... It's still 2022 in Europe. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, it's, it, it might feel like 1940 to some people in, in, in parts of Europe. But yes, 2022, we will be, uh, we'll be doing a live show. And uh, we would welcome any and all of you to come by and share some cocktails with us and share some stories with us. That'd be great. Yeah. And you might just be, uh, you might just be on, on our podcast. Be on the episode. And if you've got any questions, you can, of course, come via the website or via Twitter where my DMs are open, as the kids say. Absolutely. Well, Alex, this has been a great ride so far. Thank you for joining me on it. Thank you, my friend. See you next time. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. We thank our gifted producers, Jeremy Corr and Kate Cruz, and our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Cheers. Cheers.